Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'd like to welcome everybody to the George Mason University Center for Government Contracting monthly webinar. Today's topic is other transaction authorities. We have with us today Stan Soloway, who is the author of the report that this webinar is based on. I should mention that Stan Soloway is currently the CEO of Solero Strategies. But if you've been involved in the acquisition business for a government, that Stan is a Yoda for all things acquisition. We're also joined today uh, by Wes Bennett. He is the director of the Contracts Management Office at DARPA. And we have Mr. Dan Frick, who is vice president at SAP for Department of Defense Activities. And they've had some recent successes with OTAs in the Department of Defense. And so uh, Dan's here to join us to talk about that. I'm Stephanie Halcrow. I'll be the moderator today. I'm a senior fellow here at the Center for Government Contracting. And so without further ado, I'd like to start us off by asking Stan to give us a brief overview of the report that you wrote and what were some of the key takeaway findings. Good morning, Stephanie. Thank you. And thanks to the center for hosting this. Although I have to admit the Yoda reference is really a commentary on what's happened to my figure over COVID, but we'll leave that alone. My co-author Jason Knudsen and I were prompted to do this report for a very simple reason. If you go back over the last several years and the, and the tremendous growth in the use of OTAs, largely driven uh, by Congress giving DOD production authority and the ability to transition from prototype through the life of a program, it really started opening the floodgates to interest in OTAs, which is something, by the way, we've known for decades has been a, a barrier to, to OTAs. They've been relatively modest usage, largely because folks didn't see a, a, a path forward, to, if you will, to market. Uh, and so their use has grown dramatically, and it prompted a lot of conversation and debate. A lot of people asking the question, are they being used appropriately? And should we be concerned about how much they're being used and, and so forth? And, and Jason and I looked at it and said, just, just, to us, there's really just a couple of core questions. They're not uncomplicated, but there's some very basic core questions. One is, are the way OTAs are being executed today consistent with the precepts of public procurement? Because they are not subject to the FAR. And so what do we mean by the precepts of public procurement? In essence, and there's many sub-levels to it, it's the broad areas of competition, transparency, and accountability. Do they align there and provide adequate competition, adequate transparency and accountability? Uh, Because these are tax dollars. The, The second question is really where are they lacking? Where are the areas where we may need to address shortfalls and how OTAs are constructed today. What was interesting to us was, and others may have had similar experiences, that if you looked at most of the discussion and debate, it was not really about specific OTAs, it was about OTAs up here. And we wanted to take it down to the level, what do the actual, what are the actual terms and conditions? What do the, the, the instruments look like? So very quickly, what we found, and then we, and of course, a lot of this will get into much more detail later on. In our view, OTAs are by and large quite well aligned with public procurement. They are very competitive. They are actually, in compared to the rest of federal procurement, they're actually more competitive 
and, and drive greater competition than we see on an average uh, federal contract. Uh, and I can get into that in more detail later. They are transparent, particularly to the sponsor and to the to the entity that's utilizing them. Transparency is an issue only, in our view, really, to the extent that there's not enough data shared publicly about what's going into the, the OTs, and more importantly, what are the outcomes? I'm personally less interested in what percentage of the dollars go to a non-traditional, what impact the non-traditional has really changing an outcome at the back end. So transparency may need to be rethought a little bit, but they are transparent, and they're quite accountable. They're auditable. There's a DIU does an annual report Others do annual reports to their to, to the leadership on what they've done. Again, not enough of this is public, and there's ways in which I think we could really improve visibility. But by and large, they, they, we found that they are very uh, consistent with, with those precepts. There are also enormous issues that are out there that I think are inhibit our ability to really exploit the tool and do it in the way Congress, frankly, intended and still intends. And Dan will be able to talk to this much more, much more personal level because of some of his painful experiences, which worked out in the end. But we find that once we get through a prototype phase, the ability to transition to production is very limited. And there are actually, and this is anecdotal, this is an area we don't have great data, but there are very few cases where we've had non-traditional contractors stay with a program through the transition, largely because we see a tremendous amount of FAR creep at that point, a return to the traditional FAR methodologies. And, and even though the legislation specifically is designed to avoid that, that's as much a culture and education issue as it is a policy question. Uh, and we can talk more about that. So there are, we clearly need enhancements there. And there are some other areas we can talk about. Uh, but the other last big one really is and I remember talking to Wes about this when we were doing the, the, the research, is the workforce question. We really have a significant workforce challenge. If we're going to make OTAs as successful as they can be, however much we decide collectively they should be used, we really need to invest a lot more in developing a workforce that truly understands not just the OTA process and rules and regulations and so forth, but truly understands how commercial contracts are constructed. And these are, by the way, contracts, even though we can't call them contracts, because in federal procurement, contract actually has a very particular meaning. By any general sense of the term, they are binding documents and contractually set. So I'll lay that out just a set of issues and, and, and as a start, and obviously look forward to the conversation. Dan, that's really great. And I was so encouraged by the data that your report showed on OTAs, as well as the areas that we still need more uh, transparency on. Wes, would you jump on the workforce comment? I mean, DARPA is a huge user of OTAs. So how has DARPA cracked that nut with the workforce? Actually, inviting me to this panel, I think it's uh, very valuable to give the DOD perspective, and I also appreciate that Stan brought us in for many of the conversations uh, that came into the report. Generally, I, I pretty much agree with most of what Stan and, and his co-authors put in the report. I agree that there, there needs to be more education of the workforce, particularly, I think, in the, in the most important areas of intellectual property and data rights. Here at DARPA, the way we sort of crack that nut is we have some very senior very steeped policy experts and OTs. And uh, the agreements officers certainly uh, do a, a really good job of negotiating initially, but we have those experts that are available, you know, when they need help, when there are some unique circumstances that can jump in and provide literally decades of uh, experience towards those negotiations. And, and really what we focus on at DARPA that I think makes a big difference in how we execute OTs is 
and getting with the program managers and really understanding what the goals of that research and development are. And that really drives how that acquisition professional negotiates. And so I think it's a little bit of an understanding. It's a little bit of having the right people that we can lean on when we have questions. And then one of the things that the Stan, I think, was surprised with, and maybe is different than some of the other DOD agencies or other federal agencies, is here at DARPA, we require that any agreements officer is a contracting officer first. And, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I don't think that there really is an agreements officer way of becoming one. They don't have the same type of education, professional, and et cetera, that the contracting officers do too. But it gets back to what Stan was talking about. There are some very fundamental things that we have to do, and contracting officers understand that, and they've been put into a position throughout their career where that has been something that they've been trained with and understood. And so they start as contracting officers first, and then once they show that they have the right business acumen, the ability to think independently and out of the box, understand their customers' requirements, that's when we make them agreements officers. So if I could just, just real quick, I don't want to get ahead of Dan here, but, but just on that comment that, that Wes just made, which is really important. One of the things that, that was clear to us is if you look at different models across DOD. In, in the case of DARPA, as Wes said, they are contracting, the agreements officers are contracting officers first, but they do have a process, fairly rigorous process of determining who really has the capability to, to do something like an OT. On the other, the other side of the coin is the way the Navy has approached it. Hondo Gertz and, and, and Cindy Shaver and others have said, we actually would prefer they not come have B1102s not because they're not good people, but because we want people come in with entirely fresh minds, that, that there's no embedded thinking start, predilections at, at the beginning. Our view is that it's going to end up being a combination. And what, one of the recommendations in the report, and, and I took to heart a lot of what Wes told us, is we think we actually need to create an agreements officer core. And this is to Wes's point, have a little bit of a process where we actually have a core of people. And frankly, if we have the right kind of process for selecting people, it won't really matter that much if they're 1102s or not from a cultural perspective. But think of it almost as an enterprise service where we actually have a core of folks who are available to the services to help them work through what is a different way of doing business. So having a dedicated core and investing in that might be one way to get at some of the challenges with the workforce. Thanks, Dan. I really found it interesting how you detailed each of the services as approach to agreements officers in your report. That was very enlightening. Dan, let me ask a question about your experiences um, with working with the Department of Defense, especially with regards to the production contracts or agreements. Stan talked about that that's an area that has not been fully explored by the Department of Defense or industry. So so please share us your experiences in that. Yeah, sure, definitely. And I'll, I'll do a quick intro and, and I'll, I'll get to that. So I appreciate you one inviting me today and, and thanks for all the 126 attendees. Stan, I do see uh, you got some fanboys out there. So uh, maybe by the end, I'll have the same. So I lead our Department of Defense business at SAP. We're a massive enterprise application uh, software provider. So across the Department of Defense for the last 25 years, we've been the typical FAR-based acquisition, working with large programs, with integrators, and going through you know, RFPs and that, that whole process. And in 2016, 17-ish, we had no idea what an OTA was because that was not how we traditionally did things with software uh, companies. So we were working with, with the DUD on a um, potential TMS system, a transportation management system. And that was our first real entry into, into the OTAs. And it was fascinating experience. When you think about the RFP process where you work with an integrator, at least we do, and, and you fill out 49 pages and, and, and 78 questions, and then you wait for an answer. What, what they did was 
we had, there's probably 28 different companies where we would, they would give us almost a problem statement. We would go present something, show the power of the technology, and then there'd be like a down select. And ultimately it was a competitive down select to SAP and a part in a couple parts where we had a two-year operational prototype. And that turned out to be just a great learning experience, I think, for both industry and for the government on, you know, proving that technology. Uh, when that prototype ended, successful prototype, that's where we had a struggle going to the next step. You know, and there's multiple reasons for that. Different agencies have different priorities and, and ultimately that may come back at a later date. But as we progressed through the DOD in probably 2019, OTAs picked up. And we participated in some ammo management OTAs and some predictive maintenance OTAs and some travel OTAs. And it's great for, even though we're a massive company, we still, there's certain areas where we don't participate. We don't have a showing. So it's, it's a great experience for companies like SAP or others to, to work with the government in an area where maybe they have been in the past. But with defense travel was a, a prototype where we showed the power of a new travel system. All of them have been successful. You always learn stuff, uh, right, wrong, what to do better. But the defense travel one we worked on was one that it concluded. And to Stan's point, we had to work to figure out how to get it to a production contract. And we ultimately ended up going a FAR-based acquisition. And the award was provided in the end of uh, last fiscal year. And that'll be rolled out over a seven-year process. But while trying to speed things up with OTAs, when we got to the end, it, it slowed down because we had to flip to a FAR-based acquisition. And we'll see how it goes as far as proving out what we've already shown and rolling it out for, for real, right? For users, millions of users across the DoD. That's super high level. Some of the OTAs we participated in, and, and they're, they're a great experience. All right. I appreciate that. So, Dan, I, I actually saw in the chat there was a, a question about OT for productions going into a FAR based and, and why that could potentially be an issue or slow down. My personal thoughts on it, and I'm very much interested in yours since you've uh, lived it, is if a non-traditional or even a traditional contractor has the initial other transaction for prototype and then it's changed to a FAR base, some companies may not have things like the cost accounting system and, and some of the other regulatory abilities to comply with the federal acquisition regulations or the DFARs in our case with DOD. So that may slow it down, but what other reasons are there that a FAR-based contract for production is not maybe the preference? So what I've experienced and learned just from you know partners and colleagues was there was some hesitancy doing OTAs from, let's say we provide a solution, right? And here's the, the, the 25 things you can do government to solve your problem. And if that's then given out to the broader community, right? So some company invests a lot of money, spends two years or whatever it may be, does some work, but then it's also put out for others to bid on after. So some folks are hesitant to do everything because they don't want to do all the work and then give it to somebody else. So that's a struggle. It's different as an OEM, right? Because our software is our software, but from partners, resellers, integrators, that's one of the, the concerns is probably the right description. Of so I guess then what you're saying is it's more about competing the production rather than the than the acquisition vehicle at the end is, is what you're saying. So you could do a sole source FAR based on the legislation right now from an OT for prototype for production, or you could do a sole source OT. So it's maybe not so much that it's that it's FAR based, it's that the, the entity decides to compete the production uh, is 
Did I hear you right on that? Yeah, you did. And for the defense travel, that's ultimately what, what happened. It was, we proved it out, the sole source. We did, the, the government did the source assault and then ultimately did the, did the source. So let me take a, a very different perspective on this. And because actually, Wes, that's a core question. We tried to get into that in the report. And Dan's in an interesting position at a, at a larger company that has feet in both camps, right? So it's just a large commercial enterprise, but has a very substantial federal footprint and has a certain ability to align with tradition, has, has found a way to align with the FAR and do business under the FAR. And that's not a criticism. I'm just saying you're, there, this is one of the real problems is that not every company that comes into an OTA as the lead is going to have that capability. And so what we have found and what we've learned anecdotally, at least the data is not great, but anecdotally, from literally everybody we talked to who's been through the production process or tried to go through it, is that virtually every one of the non-traditional players has walked away at production. And that what has happened is they've either, in some cases, licensed to an OEM or licensed to the government for that immediate use case, and then they walk away. And so people say, you got the capability. And the answer is maybe, but you only got it for that one, one narrow capability. What you've lost access to, frankly, is the intellectual capital and the capability to keep iterating and keep driving forward that, that, that you were excited by enough to use an OTA to get to in the first place. And, and so what that brings me back to is a bit of a philosophical comment, but I think it's also very practical. And that is, I think we have to start from the premise of why we're doing these and, and what the point is. And we all talk about where well, we wanna to get to non-traditionals, we wanna to get to non-traditionals. We sometimes forget why that is so important. And it's not a criticism of traditional contractors. What it is a reflection of the marketplaces it is today. We've been at this for 25 or 30 years, trying to find ways to access the broadest potential technology base. And Moshe Schwartz, who, who asked the question about the impact, the implications of going to far under production, will get this as well as anyone because of his work on the 809 panel and elsewhere. We actually, in some ways, solved the problem in 1994 with the acquisition reforms and we created part 12. But since that time, we've added 154 clauses to part 12. So that means that there are companies that, were, that came into the marketplace, commercial companies, large and small, at that time, that over time have been able to really a war of attrition, if you will, begin to become more far compliant. But the reality is there's an entire universe of capability out there and the government is falling behind further faster. So now come to the question of the implications of going back to the FAR. If there are IP questions that come up and we lose access to the talent that created the solution we like, that's a big problem. It also sends a message to the marketplace that, yeah, the production authority is there, but there may not be the path to market that you think and value that you think that a company needs. That was the purpose of the production authority to begin with. So I think it's self-defeating. Our, our view very strongly, frankly, and I know you and I have discussed this before, but our view very strongly is that if you're going to use an OTA and go through the process with an OTA, you should not be, you, you can negotiate IP because you've been through it at DARPA. Government negotiations with IP are difficult without OTAs. There's always this, and, and there's a lack of awareness on the government side often of that issue. Last point I want to make on this that ties to this is we also have to recognize that, and, and, and I think Dan, I'm going, to, I'm going to make an assumption about SAP, but it may not be fair. What SAP was bringing to the table for TMS or DTS, it was not an R&D project. It was a capability that existed and was in the marketplace. And the point of the OTA was to take it into the customer environment to see if the prototype worked for the customer. So it's not a traditional R&D. The IP long predated that relationship. So my point is that we're using OTAs, and I think wisely, more and more to find 
technologies that exist that are already being used elsewhere that have an analogous use in the, in the government. So the traditional thinking around R&D and IP actually is often not even relevant uh, in terms of where the funding is. So forth. I wanted to make that linkage because I think that's another reason that coming back to the FAR is very dangerous. Yeah, so you're spot on and it's interesting. So uh, concur, right? That's the technology. It's commercial technology that 90% of the commercial customers use. So you're spot on. What We didn't develop a product. We, de we, we used a commercial product and then figure out how do you use it in the DOD with all the strict security requirements. And that gets to be a, um, a challenge, right? When it comes to, you can't do these 10 things, but then that could make the software not work. So it's this game where you got to figure out how far and secure can we take it and make it functional. And that's really one of the things that, that we had to do. So you're, you're spot on. Didn't mean to gang up on you, Wes. I don't know if we want to continue on this topic much longer because I think there's some other questions, but a couple quick points. Number one, you know, we need to be careful to say it's not R&D because I think what Dan said is there was some R&D. They took a commercial application and they needed to make modifications to make that a prototype that would work within the Department of Defense. And oftentimes that's what it is. Dan said it's a 90% solution. That 10% probably was really hard and that it needed to be research and development because we need to keep in mind what OTs currently are required for an OT for prototype. The prototype portion, the definition is, is very broad and very open, but it still needs to fall within that. And, and the way that Dan described it, I think that happens. And Wes, I misspoke. It is R&D, but it's not R&D as, as we traditionally think about it. And that's the, right. the, what, where Dan struggled and where companies I've worked with have struggled is what's the delta, the R&D delta of the, when you're doing that adaptation versus the underlying capability and the government's yeah. tendency to think that now the whole capability I need that access. So it's an interesting question because the government has needs too, right? We can't, the government has to be able yeah. to uh, access what it needs. It's not a, it's a binary question. It's not either or. Right. And I think the commercial solution openings really go to that, that the idea is yeah. that there's business processes that are already out there in commercial industry, how to modify and use those in, in, the, in the government. And, you know, last point I'll make on this is I think sometimes the companies that we award OTs for prototypes for just don't have the capabilities to move it into production and they're not of the right size and, and don't have the manufacturing capabilities and, and all of that to push it into production. Maybe there are some cases where we we push the far and that's where they walk away. I think there are other cases where it just doesn't met, meet their business model and they need somebody like an integrator or manufacturer to take it into production from there. So I, I think your anecdotal evidence is probably correct in some instances, but I think there's more to it. Yeah, and one other last point on this, when you talk about that, because I think it's a really valid point that you just made about different kinds of companies, different size companies. It also gets to what I said earlier. I think we have to be very careful about how we evaluate how OTs are being used. There's been a lot of talk about this percentage is going to primes or this percentage of dollars is going to non-traditionals. It's not really about the dollar flow. It's about the impact. And we need to be measuring outcomes and impact as opposed to the fact, and, and this has been true for, by the way, as long as I've been around, the large primes were getting the majority of the OT dollars. The question was, what were they bringing in with those dollars? What kind of a funnel were they providing for exactly the reason, Wes, you're talking about? And I think that's really important. Dan, I'd like to tee this question up for you. So if you're a small business or maybe a large business and you don't have a government side to your operations, are OTs for you? Should you, should you be searching out? OT opportunities, what advice would you give to some, to an organization, to a business, small business or large business that would like to do business with the government? Yeah. So I think the OTs are, are a great opportunity to do that. And, and here's a prime example. The TMS 
prototype was for non-traditional integrators. And you had to meet certain criteria. So we technically weren't the prime, we were on a team. So we, as a large company, were on a non-traditional small business integrator team. But what we also did was we, again, with the spirit of bringing innovation and commercial best practices to the government, we then reached out to a small business who specialized in transportation above and beyond SAP. Their niche was working with the massive commercial companies like the Nestle's and the, the Walmarts and, and the big providers of transportation goods. And we put them on the broader team. So they did zero business in the government up until that point. So, and Stan said it before, we're in a spot, we're right in the middle. We could go either way. We have, we're on contracts that are bar-based contracts, but we can also use OTA. To answer the question, I think it's a great opportunity to to break into the government where it's been difficult in the past, right? Because of, of people, frankly, like SAP, who've been in the government for 25 years, We've established how to how to work. It's awesome to do it. I think also just to add to that, we, well, we don't have a lot of great data on small businesses, but there's clearly a lot of examples. And the, the, the commercial services opening process that DIU uses and others use is wide open to anybody. And it's also lacking in all of the, I'm going to call it bureaucratic, but not necessarily that all the bureaucratic processes are wrong. It's just, it's, it's lacking in all that complexity. It's, it's you, know, you come in with a five page white paper and you do a demo of what your capability it can be very small, it can be very large. So it, I think it does provide a, a good way in. The, the one thing I do want to say on this topic is it's a big misconception. And SAP is a great example of this. And we've been asked this by SBA and other when we write in the report. OTs are not small business tools. It is not here. People keep talking about new entries, startups and so forth. That's a great market. That's a great place to come from. But there's also plenty of larger companies. SAP is a good example that also have capability. So don't think of them as small business tools, but they are great tools for small business. I'd like to comment on a couple of things. Number one, CSO, just to keep everybody grounded, is, is the solicitation process. And at the end of the CSO, you could do a FAR Part 12 contract or another transaction uh, for prototypes. So it does allow both award instrument types. Two, I really liked what Dan was talking about. The fact that they think about the teaming and it allows for non-traditional teaming with the other transactions. If, if production really is an issue, a lot of these non-traditionals or small businesses or others that are getting OTs for prototypes really should start thinking about how they team potentially at the beginning with somebody that might be able to help them get over that production line and, and allow them to have that sole source follow-on. That would be one recommendation I would have if you're thinking about using OTs and, and you really want to move that product line, you think that there's a future business there. The third thing I wanted to say is based on what Stan said, that the OTs are not uh, small business instruments, but there are a lot of incentives uh, that, that drive it non-traditionals or small businesses. For example, with OT for prototypes, if you're a large traditional business, you have to give one third cost share unless you have a non-traditional that's doing a significant part of the work. And there really is no definition on what significant means. It could be a very critical piece of the research and development. It could obviously be a, a significant amount of the subcontract work, but those sort of incentives do drive us to have more uh, non-traditionals and small businesses when our boarding our OTs. I think a, a vast majority of our stuff, although it does still go to the typical defense contractors or traditional defense contractors, it really does allow the non-traditionals and smalls to kind of break through that barrier. Yeah, there's a question in the chat about um, CSOs as a potential proxy for OTAs and how much that that creates. And it it ties to, I think, Wes's point when he said that under CSOs, you can go OTA or you can go part 12. 
and this goes back to what I said at the beginning, and one of the concerns that I've had for a long time is, and the 809 panel addressed this in their report extensively. We've so diluted Part 12 over the last 20 years. It's not that it's not a, a potentially effective methodology, but it's far more complex than was ever intended. And in a perfect world or where we were in the mid-90s, you almost didn't need OTAs beyond a certain level because you had Part 12 and Part 12. Let me back up and put it this way. Back in 98, 99, I forget which year it was, when I was at the Pentagon, I had my team do an evaluation of the OTs then. We looked at a whole set of them to see, because we were negotiating for production authority, and we needed to show the Hill that we knew what was going on. And the vast majority of them looked a lot like a Part 12 contract, as Part 12 was written and designed. But that was 23 years ago. And in the meantime, as I said, and as others have pointed out in reports, Part 12 doesn't look like it did back then. So it's not clear that part 12 solves the problem today that it could have solved or did solve back then. That may be something that also needs to be worked on. And I think the recommend, that's why we included in our report, some of the recommendations of the 809 panel. Yeah, Stan, I saw that you bring me back to my days of senior prom at high school. I'm talking about the original part part 12. Right, you're too young. And, and I think one of the recommendations in your report was to, to defar OTs and make sure that continues to happen. And I'll tell you, I'm a little concern that the more the OTs get used, it's, it's going to turn into what the FAR Part 12 contract turned into, that becomes so cumbersome, so many additional regulations and requirements on OTs that they'll become ineffective as well. Current examples are things like 889, the vaccine requirements, all of the stuff that we're starting to see in legislation now applies not only to commercial contracts and other instruments to include OTs. So got to be really careful not to put so much oversight and additional regulations and OTs that just becomes a regular part-based contract. Exactly right. It's talking about additional oversight. The FY22 NDAA was released earlier this week, and there's uh, actually a whole section, not a section, but a whole group of provisions of sections that are focused on other transaction authorities. In one of them, a Section 825 specifically adds a number of reporting requirements on DOD's use of OTs. Any thoughts on that? Is, is that additional information good? Will it create a cooling off of the activities of the Department of Defense and specifically in DARPA? Thanks, Stephanie. I appreciate that question. And the first answer is, I think it's positive. I think it, it just gives more transparency to where the dollars are actually being uh, spent with other transactions. So I have no issues with those additional requirements at all. And I think uh, a little bit of background, most of that reporting stems from a lot of the work that was done during the pandemic and awarded through OTs for consortia. And, and the way that most people are defining OTs uh, that are consortia based right now is there's a consortia manager money is given from the DOD to the consortium manager, then takes and competes that work among all the consortium members in accordance with, in close coordination with the Department of Defense. That, and then that consortium member is the one that actually executes the work. And so the current way that we measure and publicly those types of transactions makes it look like it's all gone to the consortium manager when in reality, a consortium member is actually doing the research and development of consortia. And so the, these requirements will allow FPDS to now publicly release who is actually doing the work and not just show that the top level consortium manager. So in my opinion, that's positive. At, at DARPA, it, it doesn't really have much of an effect. You know, we historically haven't used OTs within that consortium model. Certainly, I think there's a time and a place and we saw how effective it was when we really needed to move fast during the pandemic. But here at DARPA, because of the early investment in technology, we're so far 
uh, to the left of that technology area, we, we haven't seen a need yet to use consortium. So, so um, some of the other things in the legislation, we can come back if others have questions on that. But that one in particular, I, I think is a good change. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think Wes is, is, is spot on. It, it, I think well, one way to, to think about that particular clause is uh, as parents are always telling our kids that tough love comes from a great place. I think it's actually, and we've had an opportunity on several occasions to brief the House and Senate staffs on the report and get into exchanges and discussions with them. They remain very positive about OTs. If anything, the frustration is that they're not being used as much as they should be where appropriate, that they're, that the production authority that took a long time to get to has not yet really blossomed into what they hope. And so I think there's a number of the staff that want what Wes just said, what they want this data to show is a, a more realistic picture of what's going on in terms of funding to take some of those issues off the table, if you will. So it doesn't look like it's all going to CMG or, or one consortium or another. The consortiums, consortiums have, many of them report that data to their sponsor. It's just not fused in an area, a way that the public, that we have access to it. Some of it's classified, obviously, but, but where, it's, where you can have it public, where we can actually see it and understand the dollar flow, get past that and into impact and purpose. And so I think from that perspective, that provision is, is consistent, certainly with our recommendations and discussions we had with them. And I, I don't think it's intended as a negative or as a yoke around the neck of the department. Dan, there's some questions in the in the chat about playbooks on how to use OTs. And SAP obviously figured this out. So what are some of your key thoughts about getting into a collaborative environment, using an OT, transitioning that to production. Oh, I think it's said Stan. I meant Dan. I'm glad yeah. you were pointing to Dan. Thank you, because that was that's a big one. <laughs> yeah, you all know the contract and stuff. I don't, but uh, yeah, I could probably help with this one. Um, I would recommend, and, and maybe Stan and, and Wes probably have a better understanding. But when, when as SAP, we didn't know these consortiums. We didn't even know what OTAs were because we just weren't used to it. Then they're like, "Hey, you need to join this consortium." And I think it was called C5 at the time, and then you can have the ability to see the OTAs and, and potentially bid on some of these OTAs. So the first step would be to find what consortiums you should join. And I think there's a fee. I know there's a fee associated with it, but it's pretty minimal. And that's where you can have insight into what's coming out. That's probably step number one. So I'd be curious, Stan, are there a lot of different consortiums? Or Wes, do you know if there's a lot of different yeah, consortiums? There's, there's several dozen, often by functional or capability area and different sponsors. And actually... Uh, John Young just posted a question in the chat or a comment in the chat, uh, which I've actually heard him speak to before, which is not everybody thinks that the consortium model is the right model because of some gaps in visibility and transparency that are perceived. The way I think about consortiums is that they are one option. Uh, it's much like a multiple award contract in any other circumstance. You have, although you're not necessarily competing, you just have to demonstrate a capability and you join. Uh, some consortium to join for a very small business might be prohibitively expensive. They have different fee structures. I think they provide a value in that they can facilitate the contracting process, particularly for companies that don't have that, that, that capability and don't have that infrastructure. And could be a larger company that's just never done government work. So they, they have a value, but they're not necessarily always the way to go. And the, the DIU model, which is to not use consortia, DARPA does not use consortia. Uh, and this essentially a straight CSO model, which is just to recap with the CSO again from a, the Defense Innovation Unit, they post on their publicly facing website a problem statement. And anybody who believes they have a solution to that problem statement can respond. And then once they select some that seem to have a viable solution, 
they go further down and into demonstrations and discussions, but it's a fairly rapid process. So there's other months, not all through consortiums. So I think, I forget what the dollar figure was, but it's the majority goes through consortiums, but it's not the only model. And I think John Young raises an interesting question about whether that's an abrogation of DOD's responsibility, his words, not mine. You could make that case, but I think it's no different than OASIS or CIOSP4 or other vehicles we use in government to have a set of capabilities, one-stop shop to get to them. Again, visibility, transparency, data, the better data visibility that, that the legislation calls for, I think will help answer some of those questions and maybe drive us towards solutions to where there are questions about how this consortium are structured. Yeah, and then I'd also add, so th that's a very important piece, right? You first, you got to know about it. But then what we've learned from doing these OTAs is you got to be, and it is, this is what makes companies, I guess, AP better, is we need to be able to come up with demo environments that are applicable to your customer base. And that's where we set up. After that, we're like, all right, we need to be ready for these OTAs because they come out quick. And we began making these really significant investments into demo environments that are applicable to DoD and nimble. It's make it it makes us go faster. So those are probably two things. One, you got to know about it, and then two, you got to be able to show something. And depending on what company you are, will determine what you show. Dan, you mentioned the collaboration between different companies that SAP uh, leveraged for the most recent contracts that you were, OTs that you were involved in. Do you see that OTs encourage more collaboration? Obviously, there's, there's some statutory requirements to have a non-traditional be participant, but what are you seeing that from the industry side? And then Wes, what are you seeing that from, from the DOD side? Yeah, so from industry side, Definitely. It, it's encouraged more collaboration because it's not the typical answer these 15 questions. It's prove something out. So that, that makes you think more and be more innovative, more creative. But when I think about the difference between from an industry side is you work very closely with the government and collaborate with the government, which is different than the old way. It's like you, you sent the RPN and you waited to see what happened. Once once we got the down select and, and selected to to do this operational prototype, we were working with you know one stars and two stars on this is what we're going to do. This is what we're not going to do. This is how we're going to write the problem state or the PWS, the performance work statement. And this is what success will look like. And then two years later, let's have touch points, obviously in the middle, but let's let's make sure we're being successful. So I'd say for our side, collaboration with the government was excellent. And it's just different than what you usually do. So not just only collaboration with other industry, but collaboration with the government. Yes. Yes. So it's pretty interesting. It's just, it's a different, it was a different approach than I've ever been used to. Can I just, can I just put that in a really simple box, which is one of the things that excites me, not just about OTAs, but the CSO process, even though they're not OTAs, which is it is the definition of performance-based acquisition. And if you're in a performance-based environment, you're you have to collaborate. They don't come out and say, here are the specs. And, and, and that to me is a huge step for federal acquisition. Yeah. So let, let me jump in, Stephanie. I think you want to know my perspective as well. And, and real quick though, Stan, CSO is one, one solicitation type that does that a statement objectives and asks for a solution. 
DARPA, we use broad agency announcements, which does the same thing under FAR Part 35. And oftentimes we use what we call program solicitations, which is very similar, but it doesn't require you to just be under that CSO type of regulations there. So there, there are many different solicitation types that get to that same same model and that same goal. As far as whether I have seen that the OTs are driving more collaborations between large and small businesses, the answer is absolutely. I've talked to a few of my counterparts at the large defense contractors, and they've said that that DOD shift to using OTs has really caused them to go back and look at the vendors that they're using and find and cultivate some of those relationships with non-traditional small R&D type companies that are driving innovation. Because that one-third cost share is, is a big deal, particularly on some of the programs that, that we're awarding here at DARPA, and I'm sure the Army is the same way and Navy and Air Force. So they are cultivating that relationship. I am seeing that. Another thing that Stan said that really drove home and Dan said the same, because we're coming up with very challenging, very hard research and development projects. It's very rare that any one industry partner has all of the expertise that would be required to put that together. And so it really drives both the collaboration with the government to talk about what capabilities are out there, but also with lots of other businesses to, to bring back that full sort of research and development solution to the government. All around, I think it's really positive. Dan, what does the DOD need to do to better utilize OTs and industry collaboration? It's a good one. I think it's transparency on where to go. Like I, I learned a lot of stuff from talking to, to Wes and, and Stan, and, and one of them is the consortium piece. Like industry probably doesn't even know that 15 different consortiums are where to go. And some are used, or some OTAs go through that and, and some don't. So it's almost maybe a more centralized approach to OTs. And maybe there is a spot that's that's more centralized to know what OTs are out there and, and what's coming. If you compare it to the, the far-based world, you have the industry days that's released to, to industry where you can come and sit and learn about what's coming or the Air Force CIO will have a, here's my 10 initiatives for FY23. Visibility would probably be my, my answer. Let me give you some pointers and, and this would be great for others that are industry that are on the line and very much focused on DARPA, but all of our opportunities, whether it's OTs or a traditional FAR-based contract, are all released on SAM.gov. Yeah. And I, I, would, I always encourage folks to go on SAM.gov. You can set up searches by agency and et cetera. And again, we don't use any of the consortia, but I think part of that transparency in, in the way that DOD is going towards is to get a list and make sure that's publicized and available so that if it's a technology area that you're interested in, then you can you know potentially go out and try to find that consortia. But you know, frankly, what consortium managers are also supposed to be doing is going out and sourcing and trying to find the non-traditionals. And so part of it is DOD holding them responsible for that portion of what we're paying them to do. Again, we don't use those yet at DARPA. Um, haven't found a situation where it makes sense, but it is one tool in the toolbox where it can sometimes be a thing to do. All of our stuff is out there, is available to the public. And I would say oftentimes we do very similar industry days to our regular FAR-based contracts, even when we're doing OTs, because you know, that ability to come in and hear the program manager also meet some of the other industry partners that, that might be interested so you can team and collaborate, we think is important regardless of the instrument that's going to be awarded. And Dan, the other thing, and somebody just posted this in chat as well, the Defense Authorization Act last year required DOD to set up a directory, essentially, of all the consortium. And, and some of them have, they have hundreds of, some of them have well over a thousand members. They're, they're, some of them are quite large, but th there are resources to, to identify them. And if I could just tie it back to a question somebody asked earlier, they said that they're concerned about the venture capital community being aware of OTAs and, and the possible path they present. 
my experiences with the venture capital community is very aware of, of the OTA model because they've known about it there. A lot of them are obviously California based, not all of them, but they're engaged in the California community. So there's a lot of awareness, but again, some of the same concerns and frustrations about getting to market. Part of, we started this conversation talking about the workforce and, and how that needed to be developed. And some of the reliance on OT for consortia is the fact that, that there is a small cadre of folks that can do OTs across the federal government, in particular DOD. And the more comfortable and the better workforce that we have trained, uh, there may not be a need for less reliance on the consortia uh, model in the future. And, and there may be a little bit more of opportunity regardless if you're a consortium member, to get some of these awards across DOD. So again, the key, I think, in, in Stan's report really outlines this, is, is making sure that we continue to develop and train uh, the next generation of agreements officers. Stan, as we uh, finish up here, your report made a number of recommendations. There are several folks from the Hill, as well as policymakers from OSD and the services level in the Pentagon. Could you highlight some of those recommendations in the report and which ones you think are most important? Yeah, some of them, uh, again, they will require much more additional uh, detail because we couldn't really boil the ocean. But the the basic ones really revolved around, to Wes's point, first of all, creation of a of an agreements officer workforce, an agreements cadre to really build the capacity across the department. You know, we have a sort of a rhetorical question of the question is where are OTAs appropriate? Maybe the question is where are they not appropriate? And I'm not sure yet that there's there are areas you wouldn't want to use them. But again, given the need of the needs of the government, if you take again the SAP experience and the kind of functional areas that SAP is in and what the role of traditional R&D and so forth, we think that they can be significantly expanded in use, but requires to really invest in the workforce. We think there ought to be a prohibition on putting FAR clauses into OTs. And in SAP's example, they went to a FAR contract. If that's the decision and the company's comfortable with it, that's fine. But if you're going to do an OT, do an OT. Don't do it. Try to do a hybrid. It just, it actually doesn't work. And it gets you down this slippery slope that I think we could get into. There are some recommendations in the 809 panel report, particularly around commercial items and services that are highly relevant to this whole area. So I think there's some of the the, the areas and then really around data and transparency of of where the dollars are going and and most importantly, what outcomes are we getting? Let's focus on what the need was and recognize that, and I'll use SAP as a hypothetical here, SAP was doing a prototype. If the prototype failed, that is not a failure in the OT perspective. It's okay, it didn't work. That's not how we measure the success of OTs. The success of OTs is are we getting new thinking, new ideas, new capability, at least on the table so we can evaluate it. And in some cases it won't work. Okay, that's the nature of the beast. I'll just close with, I agree with most of everything Stan has said, and and I agree with a majority of the report. I just always want to caution that we need to be careful of doing one size fits all approaches, whether it's uh, training in the workforce or, or how the reporting happens, putting additional constraints and restrictions on how we do OTs, because frankly, that's what makes them so successful for us is, is the flexibility to look at the situation, use some true business acumen, make sure that we're following adequate procurement integrity and, and shape that for what makes sense for that particular acquisition and requirement. And if you start to put too many rules and regulations and best practices in place, you lose that flexibility. So we just need to be careful and and make sure that everybody's in the room when we have those conversations. And thank you for the invite again. Of course, Wes. 
Dan, I'll offer the last words to you because I do think it is unique to have industry be part of a webinar and share your experiences. Oftentimes, industry is reluctant to do that. Yeah, thank you for, again, inviting me. And it's been a great uh, hour. So I would just say we as industry, we encourage OTs. They make us better, right? They make us more agile. They make us quicker. And ultimately, it helps our customer base. So we, we love doing them and the process will continue to get better, but we really learned so much from just those four or five OTAs that we've been a part of. And personally, the whole collaboration piece that we talked about, that was the most, probably one of the highlights of my career will be that, just the whole collaboration piece with the government to, to put together what the project will look like. Again, thank you for having me and I, I appreciate uh, everyone joining. Awesome. Thanks so much. I really appreciate all the panelists. I'd like to highlight that I placed the link to Stan's report in the chat. It's also on the uh, Center for Government Contracting website. The Center for Government Contracting has a LinkedIn page now if you want to follow that or join our subscription list to get emails about uh, upcoming events. I'd like to thank some of the folks behind the scenes. Charlie Dolgus, who's the Deputy Director of the Center for running everything uh, in the background as well as Jerry McGinn, the executive director of the center for allowing us to, to have this conversation. And a final thanks uh, to the panelists, Dan and Wes, and of course, our acquisition Yoda and author of the report, Stan Soloway. Thanks so much, everybody. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.